Thank you, Pastor Chuck. <clears throat> well, good morning. Pastor Chuck has already introduced me, but my name's Andy Clare. I'm a member here at Church on Mill. Uh, we're in between series right now, and so next week, Chuck will be getting a, a new short series, and we finished Galatians here at the end of December last month. Uh, this morning, we're going to be finishing the book of Jude. Last week, we looked at the first half. This morning, we're going to look at the second half of Jude. We're a Bible-believing church here at Church on Mill, so we believe that what the Bible says, God says. So what we want to do every week is simply open up the text and hear what God would speak to us. Some of you have fallen victim to my recent interest in reading poetry. I've, I've had mixed reactions, largely, but they've been widely negative. Um, that's never stopped me before, so I'm going to open up our morning with some poetry. One of Robert Frost's best-known poems is The Road Not Taken. For many of us, we are familiar with this poem, and especially with the ending of the poem, how this poem ends. These are the, the final words of the poem. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. It's a beautiful set of lines. It's haunting in some ways, but it's truly a beautiful picture. But here's the problem. With just, if we just are familiar with those last two lines, we miss something. If we just look at those last two lines, the, the poem takes on a nonconformist bent. It takes on a be-your-own-person message. And, and it says, take the road not traveled, regardless of what that road is. But the bigger picture in Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Traveled, is not merely a poem about nonconformity. The bigger picture is a poem about the anxiety and the indecision that looking at two equally appealing options he has to make. It's about the decision-making process in the poem. His first stanza is this. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent into undergrowth. The Christian life is well captured in the road not taken. The Bible teaches that there are two roads in life. There is a road that leads to true knowledge of God and true love of God, and there is a road that doesn't. Everyone, every one of us, is either on one road or the other. Additionally, the decision points that each of us face throughout this life are oftentimes confusing and sometimes difficult. The road isn't always well-marked, and we often want to go down one road, even though we know we should go down the other. In the words of Frost, we stand and look down as far as we can to see where it bends and to where we can't see any further. Today, our passage in Jude brings us to a decision point. Jude is writing to a church that originally was walking in the Christian life. 
But now, false teachers have crept into the church. And today in our passage, Jude writes to this church and he says to the Christians, you've come to a decision point. You need to pick one road or the other. The Christians in the church are standing at the fork in the road and they're peering down the road to see as far as they can until they can't see any further. But they're confused. And, and they're having trouble making the right decision. The reason Jude writes is because he wants to clearly show to the Christians how both of these roads end and what it looks like to walk on either of these roads. He writes to urge them, pick the road that leads to eternal life. So let's look at how Jude does that and where he would lead us. Turn with me in your Bibles to Jude, uh, verses 14 through 25. If you don't have your own Bible today, you can use one of the, the blue Bibles that should be in the chair in front of you, and you can find Jude on page 594 of that Bible. So page 594 of the little blue Bible. Jude 14 through 25. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Our passage today needed a thesaurus for the word ungodly. But beyond that, our passage today gives us two paths. Two options. One path, one path that Jude gives us today is the path of the love of God, to keep yourself in the love of God. The other path, the other path that is the alternative to this, is to walk in the path of grumbling, to walk in the path of discontentment, of finding fault. What Jude is trying to do in our passage is to shed light on each of these paths 
he shows us that there, there are only these two options. You will either walk in the love of God or you will walk out of the love of God. And he's ultimately trying to show us where each of these paths end. Where do they lead? One path leads to eternal life and divine mercy. The other path leads to divine judgment. Let's recap where we're at in Jude. You may remember from last week that false teachers have snuck into the church, the church that Jude is writing to. These false teachers have changed the gospel. Unlike in the book of Galatians, where false teachers crept in and added requirements to the gospel, these teachers in Jude have crept into the church and they've subtracted requirements from the gospel. These teachers have essentially said, because God loves us unconditionally, and because Jesus has made us right with God through his work on the cross, because of that, we can live however we want. More specifically, these teachers have turned the grace of God into permission to live any sort of sexual life they want and to speak in any way they saw fit. For these teachers, there's not just two paths to walk. For these teachers, there are many paths to walk. These teachers are the burger king of religion. They tell the people, have it your way. Each individual path is as plausible as the next. The problem, the problem with this teaching is that it's wrong. The entire revelation of God has been that God is holy and that to approach God, his people must be holy. Holiness applies to all parts of our life. But the Bible teaches that uniquely holiness in our sexuality and holiness in our words are of unique importance to approaching God. But these false teachers have completely regarded God's call to holiness, especially in the area of sexuality and especially in the area of words. Jude is writing to correct the church on this issue. If you read verses 5 through 13 that we worked through last week, you'll see that Jude gives example after example of people from the Old Testament who tried to have it their way. The result of each of these Burger King people was not unlike eating at the real Burger King. It was disastrous. <laughs> but in Jude's example, God brings destruction and judgment to these individuals. What Jude is trying to do is he's trying to give the Christians in this church an aerial view of the path. He's trying to do a flyover so that the Christians can look down and see both, baths, bath, see both paths clearly. He's saying, Christian, look, there's not many paths to walk in this life. There are two paths. One path is the path of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The other is the path of the world. Those are the only two options. 
Jude, in our text, in verses 14 through 25, Jude cites two different sources that he, that he looks back to. One of his sources is a guy named Enoch. Enoch's from the Old Testament. Enoch's in the Old Testament, but the quote that, Job, that Jude uses isn't in the Old Testament. But Jude still uses it. And the second source that Jude uses is the apostles. The apostles that walked with Jesus. So Jude is taking two sources. One of them was practically at the creation account. He was back in the beginning, only seven generations from Adam. And that guy, back at the beginning, he knew the faith. He knew the faith that was one time for all delivered to the saints. The other guys, the apostles, they walked with Jesus. And they knew the faith. They knew the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude cites Enoch, Jude cites the apostles, and Jude himself is laboring to show this aerial view. For all time, Christian, there's only been two paths. The path of faith and the path of the world. And he's laboring and to say, Christian, if you're having trouble seeing down the path, if the bend in the yellow woods has you confused, let me tell you about the path. Trust me. But what, what is Jude specifically saying about this path? What is, what is Jude uniquely telling us about the path of faith? Now, I'll admit, Jude is saying a lot in these verses. He's saying a lot of things. But one primary emphasis surfaces in his pastoral care. As he labors to teach this church, there's one primary issue among many that he mentions. The big idea that that I want us to look at, that I think Jude is primarily emphasizing, is this. You can't both be a Christian and be a grumbler. You can't both be a Christian and be a grumbler. Now, let me be clear, this isn't all that Jude is saying, but I think that this is his primary concern in our text. Let's relook at verses 14 through 19. Verses 14 through 19 are primarily talking about two kinds of problems. Two kinds of problems in verses 14 through 19. One problem, uh, one problem that all humans face is, is what we do. It's a problem of our actions. And you see this in a couple places in our text. One place, Jude says, the Lord comes to convict all the ungodly of what? What's the conviction? Of all their deeds of ungodliness, of things that are done, of actions. And later he says this, these, the ungodly, they follow their own sinful desires. You can see that what we do with our bodies is important. We aren't free to live in a way that is contrary to God's nature. We're not free to pursue any desire that we would want or commit any action that we would want. The text is very clear that ungodly actions will be personally judged by Jesus. But there's a second problem that Jude is emphasizing. And I believe that the second problem is far more prevalent to his pastoral concern. Yes, the text is clear about actions and deeds, but verses 14 and 19 place more emphasis on the words we speak. He's more concerned 
with what we say. Let's look at, let's look at these examples. The Lord comes to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all the harsh things that they have spoken against him. These are, what are, what are these called? These are the grumblers. These are the malcontents. These are the loudmouthed boasters. Sometimes you wake up in the morning to your children and you say, these are the grumblers. These are the malcontents. These are the loudmouth boasters. But Judas saying that, that this is all of us. Words, the words of these people are consuming Jude's attention. Yes, the actions will be judged, but his words that Jude belabors, this is what's consuming the focus here. Verse 17, he continues, what, what do the apostles predict? The apostles predict that there will be scoffers, people who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Grumblers, malcontents, boasters, scoffers. Do you see how, even though there are many things that we could explore here, it's words that Jude is primarily concerned with. If Dorothy and Toto were walking with us, we could say, grumblers and boasters and scoffers, oh my. But what's the alternative? What other option does Jude give us? If grumbling is bad, then how should we live? What is our option? Jude goes on, verses 20 through 23, to explain the, the second path, the path of faith. And Jude says, If grumbling in your heart is one path, then guarding your heart in God's love is the other path. If grumbling in your heart is one path, then guarding your heart in God's love is the second path. Jude just spent uh, five verses to say, grumblers and boasters and scoffers, oh my. But he transitions to say, but you, beloved, but you. You, Christian, are not to live like this. Your life is not to be marked by grumbling, by scoffing, or by boasting. Your life is to be marked by the love of God. The love of God is to be what defines your life. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy that, of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Why does, John, why does Jude do this? Why, why does he compare these two things to be the paths? To, to grumble or to guard? It's because Jude knows the human heart. Jude knows the functioning of the human heart. And, and he knows this. A heart, a heart that is actively engaged in grumbling can't know the love of God. The heart that is actively engaged in grumbling cannot know the love of God. 
Does your heart tend toward murmuring? Do you get frustrated easily? Is it hard for you to wake up in the morning without feeling resentful about something? You, you don't even know what that something is, but you're resentful. Do you frequently leave work grumpy? Do you frequently leave church or gospel community grumpy? Enough about myself. <laughs> Let me tell you something. It is impossible to simultaneously know the love of God and to grumble. It is impossible. Grumbling, fundamentally, is a discontent about your lived experience that leads you to think that you could do it better. Grumbling, fundamentally, is a heart posture that says, I deserve better. It's a heart posture that says, God, your love is not enough for me today. Do you see how this is true in your own life? Let's look at two examples that Jude has already given us back in verse 11. Jude gives us two examples, Cain and Korah. Why are these significant? Well, what was Cain's problem? We know that Cain offered a sacrifice to God and it wasn't accepted. But that's not the big problem. The big problem is that Cain grumbled because of that. Instead of seeing uh, uh, an opportunity to re-enter the love of God and God's mercy, he grumbles. And he becomes angry. In his heart, Cain is saying, I deserve to approach God however I want. And his grumbling leads him to anger and his anger leads him to murder. Let's look at Korah. Korah grumbles about not being the priest. Korah was a Levite, but he wanted, he wanted the top dog spot. In his heart, Korah said, I'm as good as Aaron. I'm as good as Moses. I deserve to approach God however I want. And his grumbling leads him to rebellion, and his rebellion leads to destruction. Both Cain and Korah, in their grumbling, in their grumbling, they were unable to see the love and mercy of God. In their grumbling, Cain couldn't see that God was merciful and God gave him a second chance. All he could see is, I deserve better. Korah, in his grumbling, he couldn't see. God delivered me out of slavery. God freed me from the yoke of bondage. He couldn't see that. All he could see is that I deserve better. Cain and Korah, instead of meditating on the merciful, loving kindness of God, they focused on wanting something different. Brothers and sisters, when you and I grumble, it's like putting blinders on to every goodness and to every kindness that God has worked in our lives. When we grumble, 
it is as though we are in the courtroom and we dismiss every piece of objective, verifiably reliable evidence. And then we declare our judgment as just. And with tunnel vision, we say, I deserve better. Grumbling leads us to do things that we never thought we might do. When, when we are resentful and grumbling at work, we might spend hours each week checking our personal emails and playing games because work doesn't really deserve my best. They haven't earned my loyalty. When, when we're grumbling and resentful at home, we criticize our spouse openly. We are harsh with our children and we rarely keep commitments to family events. When we are grumbling and resentful in our church family, we say unkind things to one another. We create divisions and we undermine the unity of the body. And when we are grumbling and resentful about our bodies, maybe about how we look or about the emotions we experience, we, we tend to become promiscuous and we begin to value self-expression more than personal holiness. And, and the problem just gets bigger because all of these things that grumbling leads us into leads us further and further from the love of God. It's grumbling is the gateway drug of the spiritual life. So Jude urges the Christians, Jude urges the Christians, keep yourselves in the love of God. Guard yourselves. Watch over your hearts. There are only two paths in life. One path is dictated by the heart that grumbles. The other path is guarded by the love of God. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart. Keep, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart is the seat and the center of your emotions, of your affections. Scripture tells us that it is not natural that our heart would be protected and preserved and would be healthy. No, Scripture tells us that the heart must be guarded. It must be kept diligently with vigilance. Guard your heart with all vigilance. Because out of your heart will flow springs of life. Out of your heart will flow bounty of love in God. But functionally, functionally, how do we do this? If, if there's two paths, one path is to grumble, the other path is to guard in the love of God. How do we walk this path out? Well, Jude helps us with this. Jude tells us, how can we do this? How can we carry this out? If you're a Christian here today, Jude gives you three steps, three practical ways that you must do to keep yourself in the love of God. If you're a believer today, there are three things that we can walk away from this text and commit ourselves to. If you're a believer today, the first thing that you can do is, Jude says, build yourself up in the holy faith. Build yourself up in the holy faith. Look at all the examples that Jude has used from the Old Testament. 
Jude spent a lot of time in his Bible. Jude spent a lot of time in the revelation of God about this faith. The most practical way that you, Christian, can keep yourself in the love of God is to be daily in God's words. Read the stories of faith. It's interesting. Jude doesn't just cite the Bible. Jude cites um, other writings that are done by faithful spiritual authors. You can see we have a book stall in the back here at Church on Mill, books that all of our pastors would commend to you for your faith journey. Pick one up. Find healthy Christian writers that will encourage you in the faith. If Bible reading isn't part of your daily rhythm of life right now, it's the start of a new year. Pastor Chuck has already sent out an email with several options for Bible reading plans. And if you aren't currently actively engaged in the words that the eternal God has given to us to cherish and to love, connect with one of our pastors. Ask about their reading plan. Maybe you could read the same plan. Look to someone next to you. Most of us, many of us, are daily in Scripture in a systematic way that maybe you could jump on board and read the Bible with another believer. Make this commitment. Build yourself up in your holy faith and keep yourself in the love of God. What's the second thing? If you're a Christian, Jude says to you, pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Prayer is essential to the Christian faith. God is a personal God. God has created us with personalities, with ideas, with emotions, with expressions, and he's done that because that's an imitation of himself. He wants to engage you in a personal way. God wants to speak to us through his words. He wants to listen to us in our prayers. And he wants to change our hearts, to change our affections, to give us renewed confidence of his love through the Holy Spirit. This all happens in the place of prayer. Give time regularly to prayer. There are certain seasons of your life where, where, where certain prayers have a, have a resonance or are especially helpful. My, one of my prayers for the last several weeks has been this. Holy Spirit, increase my awareness of your working in my life today. It's simple, but it's simply, God, Holy Spirit, increase my awareness of your mercy, providence, and love in every moment of my today. If, if your prayer life is not at a, at a spot where you want it to be, begin with something simple like that. Simply ask God to give you a sense of his presence. Be in prayer every day, Christian. Even when you don't feel it, God is using the grace of prayer to keep you in his love. Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God. And if you're a Christian, what's the third thing that Jude gives us? The third thing that Jude gives us is this. Eagerly awaiting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Eagerly awaiting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Who here is eagerly awaiting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ? 
Can I get an amen? Friends, if you don't realize, if you don't realize that you have received infinite, eternal mercy from God, you will never overcome grumbling. If you don't realize that you are the recipient of divine mercy, you are the object of God's loving kindness, then you will continue to live as a slave, wanting something better in life. You will grumble against your wife, you will resent your kids, and you will only do things for your own selfishness. But if you regularly meditate on the mercy of God, you will live a transformed life. As I was writing this sermon, I was sitting at my desk uh, in our apartment, and my desk looks over our, our parking lot. And as I sat there, a group of kids walked through our parking lot. One of these kids uh, had a water bottle, and he decided to throw his water bottle as high into the air as he could onto the top of our parking structure. I immediately began to grumble. And as I sat there watching, uh, the second kid, not to be outdone, he, he goes over to my neighbor's truck that has a bunch of logs in it. He picks up one of those logs, and then he walks over to the parking structure. And he turns around, and lobbing the log backwards over his head, he throws this oak log onto the roof of my parking structure. And then they walked away. And fuming, I ransacked my brain for how I could get these punk kids locked away for life in prison. <laughs> but then I realized as I was writing this sermon, Andy, you're grumbling. Andy, is, is your response to these kids appropriate for someone who has been forgiven and freed from an eternity in hell? Have I meditated on the mercy of God today? And has the mercy of God governed my every reaction to my daily experience? But then the next day, I was sitting working on my sermon, and I see a different kid from a different apartment dragging a full bag of trash over to the dumpster. And I think to myself, what are the chances that he's just going to leave that bag of trash next to the dumpster? And sure enough, Within the next minute, there are not one bag of trash next to the dumpster, but two bags of trash next to my dumpster. Having already processed something very similar the day before, and led in God's kindness, not my own, I sat there, and I prayed that the God of mercy would be merciful to that young man in his life, that that young man could one day know the mercy that I know in Jesus Christ. If we ourselves know that we are the objects of infinite mercy, we will live a transformed life. If we are eagerly awaiting more than anything, not the next pay raise, not the next vacation, not the next big life change, but if we eagerly await the infinite mercy of God, we will live differently. We will, as Jude says, have mercy on others who doubt. 
We will save some by snatching them from the fire, hating even the idea of sin. If you're already a believer here today, Jude has given us three directives for how to live a life in the love of God. How do you walk a path in increasing love of God? Build yourself up in the holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Eagerly await the mercy of God that will lead you to eternal life. But if you aren't yet a believer and you're here today, first of all, thank you. It is, there's nothing more joyous uh, than to have your um, kind and, and generous attention and presence with us. If you aren't a believer in Jesus Christ, it might be easy to walk away today and think that Christianity is primarily just like every other self-help program in the books. Today's program could seem better than others because instead of 12 steps, you have three steps. And as attractive as that is, that's not the core of, of what this message is saying to you. Christianity is not about trying harder, doing more, being a better you. If you're not a believer yet today, I want you to walk away with this idea. You will never live the gospel life. You will never live the life free from grumbling, free from harsh words, free from arrogant speech without supernatural power. You will never live the overcoming life without supernatural power. The only way that you can live a life free from grumbling at all times and in all circumstances is to know one key fact. And, and this is the key fact. Jesus never grumbled. Jesus never grumbled, no, not once. And he was rejected by God. Jesus lived a morally and spiritually perfect life before God. And God completely rejected him when he died. Why? Why was Jesus, who never grumbled, why was he rejected by God? Because when God rejected Jesus, Jesus experienced the divine rejection that our grumbling rightly deserves. Jesus was a substitute for our grumbling. And now if we place faith in Jesus for being that substitute, we can have confidence that we will always and only be recipients of God's mercy, not his judgment. And this is because of nothing we've done, but this is entirely because Jesus did it all. The key idea here is that Jesus never grumbled and he was rejected by God so that we can be accepted by God and never have reason to grumble. Jesus never grumbled and he was rejected. So now we can be accepted and we never have to grumble. Instead, we can eagerly await the mercy of God. Until you realize that, until you realize that that supernatural substitution that happened 2,000 years ago, you will never have the power to deny your grumbling spirit and to guard your heart in God's love. We stand at a path. We stand at a decision point to guard or to grumble. And by God's grace and in his power, 
May he lead us in the path of his love. Let's close in prayer. God, you are a God of infinite mercy. And in Christ Jesus, you've made us the objects, not of your wrath, not of divine punishment, but in your divine mercy, you've made us objects of your love. I pray that you would make each of us into merciful people by your grace so that we could walk the road of faith well. As we labor to keep ourselves in your love, God, we can know it ends well because you will keep us from stumbling, because you will empower us. And as Jude said, now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.